book of Acts. If you guys don't have one, you can raise your hand. We have ushers that would love to get your Bible. Book of Acts, chapter 9 is where we're at. We've been in a series going through the book of Acts. If you guys have been with us for any length of time, uh, this is kind of the series we've been looking at. We've been looking at verse by verse, chapter by chapter, reading through it. And uh, it's really the story of the early church. Um, I like to describe uh, the book of Acts as being like a biography. It, it's, it's a narrative. It's a biography about, not a, necessarily an individual, but a series of individuals we call the church. And it's the story of how this, this little movement uh, began from sort of very insignificant beginnings um, to become this worldwide uh, force to be reckoned with. And what's, what's amazing about the church, that we'll see, is that in its humble beginnings, it got traction, moved forward, and was this unstoppable force, not by way of violence. I mean, most movements gain traction, move forward by some form of violence, right? Violent talk, militaristic language, um, violent behavior, threatenings, you know, fear and all this type of stuff. That's not the church. The church, this community that we see in the book of Acts, moves forward by way of loving their enemies, by, by way of taking these radical risks and radical steps of faith, trusting God and God sustaining them and carrying them all the way. And so we see this movement really kind of cascading out or telescoping out into uh, and throughout all history. To today, Christianity has had literally global reach. I just read a statistic a couple days ago that said like one in three human beings, uh, maybe even more than that, on, on planet Earth are, is, is somehow affiliated, connected to some form of Christian idea or ideology. So Christianity has had this massive impact upon the world. So what we see is the book of Acts is really the story of this movement. And what the author does for us, his name is Luke, and he tells us this story, the overall overarching story of this movement. But every once in a while, he'll kind of pause and focus on uh, certain characters, characters that for the most part uh, we would never know anything about because there's, their names don't arise in the gospel accounts. Their names don't arise throughout any other, other books throughout the New Testament. So otherwise, apart, apart from Luke giving us kind of insight or information about them, we wouldn't know anything about them. And that's kind of what today is going to be about. We're going to look at a character, a guy by the name of Ananias, who really, for the most part, is insignificant. We don't know anything about him. We don't know what role he played in the church. Uh, we don't really know much about him other than his name and where he lived and uh, the fact that he was a follower of Jesus, which we'll look at in just a moment. Um, one, one scholar I, I, I like kind of described it in a commentary like this. His name is N.T. Wright. And he describes Ananias like this. And he was uh, giving an analogy. He described it was like a, a symphony that he had gone to one day where as he was at the symphony, he noticed that there was a guy sitting in the backstage, looked completely bored, Bored out of his mind. In fact, he actually noticed him at one point throughout the symphony. He gets up from his location on stage, walks off stage. He happened to go back off stage as well at the same time. And they're both at the snack bar buying something, you know, coffee or tea or whatever. And this guy that has gotten off stage, who looked bored, has no idea what this guy's doing. He's ordering something at the you know, snack bar. And at the same time, he's like keeping track uh, of, of numbers. He's like saying numbers, keeping track of the symphony that's going on in the background. And all of a sudden, this guy orders, gets his stuff, gets back on stage, and then it reaches his climactic role. This guy all of a sudden bends down, picks up these two big, massive symbols, and right at the right moment, this climactic moment, clings them together and brings together this entire symphony at this very climactic moment. So this guy's role literally had one simple role, but it was the most climactic, important role of the entire symphony, right? So he's describing, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like this guy in an eyes. 
Like, he's got no other role that we're aware of in the story except the fact that he is called upon by God to play this sort of climactic role in praying for uh, probably the most important figure in the remainder of the book of Acts, aside, obviously, from Jesus, a guy by the name of Paul the Apostle that we just saw last week. He gets radically transformed by having this encounter with God that we call or describe as his conversion. So with that, what I want to do is I want to just kind of read the story. I want to just read through the the passages. I'll let it kind of speak to us. Um, I'll I'll make some um, pauses and I'll kind of unpack certain ideas that we will come across. But for the most part, what I really want to do is I just want to let the text speak for itself. One of the things I've mentioned in the past is that when you read your Bible, is the Bible is actually filled with all sorts of different types of literature. There's uh, poems, uh, there's songs, we call those psalms, there's poems in the form of like Ecclesiastes or the Song of Solomon, um, and there are other prophetic books that kind of give prophecies and they uh, give these great uh, overarching declarations. Um, there are also books that we would call didactic, meaning they are teaching, so you open them up and you can read information, you can read advice and, and guidelines on how to live the Christian life. So you can read like the book of Timothy or Ephesians and get kind of teaching on that. And there's other passages or other books that are basically narratival or narrative. And it just gives a story. So it's to be, it's to be read like a story. I think one of the things that we oftentimes do, I should say we, meaning like, like pastors and people who talk, is, is we, can, we can so unpack and so spend a lot of time dissecting uh, books of the Bible, for example, even narrative-type books, that you lose the overarching story. And I, I want to be careful about that. And I think when that happens, when you spend so much time focusing on a particular idea or concept and you don't pay attention to the overall theme, I, I think it's actually doing a disservice to the Scripture itself. I don't think it's honoring the Scripture rightly. I think the way you honor the Scripture rightly is letting the Scripture, whatever type of Scripture it is written according to, let it be what it is to be. And that's what I want to try to do. So I'm going to read it. I'll make some comments as we go through, and we'll kind of wrap it up. So that's what we'll do. So let's pick it up at Acts chapter 9. It's a little bit of a background there. Acts chapter 9. Pick it up at verse 10. And uh, I'm going to just, uh, just to warn you, I'm going to stop very quickly, and I'm going to make some statements uh, very fast. So starts off Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 10. Where am I at here? Now, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. I'm going to stop right now. So, I told you. I warned you. I warned you. The disciple is the word I really want to look at. Because the word disciple is one of those words that oftentimes is a little bit unfamiliar to us. We don't use it in our modern day vocabulary. Um, We don't use it in our modern day discussions with other people. It's kind of a Christianized type of a word. And it's oftentimes relegated mainly to the Bible. Um, So, we've got to unpack this word a little bit and think about it a little bit further. Um, when we oftentimes talk about followers of Jesus, if someone were to ask you, hey, what do you call a follower of Jesus? Most of us, the word that we most predominantly use is the word Christian. We describe followers of Jesus as being Christians, or they are Christians. Um, the, the, the problem with that is, is that that is not the predominant word to describe Jesus' followers in the Bible. In fact, maybe some of us didn't know that. Um, in fact, that word is only used maybe one to three times in the entire Bible to describe followers of Jesus. So it's kind of funny how we actually use a word to describe followers of Jesus that the Bible itself doesn't that the Bible itself doesn't necessarily use. Um, it's nothing wrong with that. It's not a problem. But I think the problem comes is when we forget information from the words that the Bible does use. So the word that the Bible does use to describe followers of Jesus, 
most predominantly is the word disciple. Um, it actually appears around 260, almost 300 times, this word disciple is used to describe Jesus followers, people that were committed to Jesus. One of the best ways, I think, to think about the word disciple is to just think about the best way to think about it in today's context, I think, is uh, an apprentice. Um, some would describe like a, a student or a learner. The only problem with that is that you can be a student of a professor. You can follow a professor, like the way the professor teaches, want to learn everything about the professor, but you're not necessarily model or emulate everything about the professor's life because there's elements about the professor that you're like, I don't, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to dress the way he dresses. I don't want to think the way necessarily he thinks on some of these other issues. But um, so the best way I think about uh, disciple is to think of an apprentice. So an apprentice is somebody that wants to be everything that their, their master is. They, they want to think the way they think. They want to act the way they, th- they act. And this is really kind of what a disciple is. I think one of the best ways to think about the word disciple is to kind of let Jesus give us the definition himself. And that's why I want to turn real quick to the book of Matthew, chapter 4, verse 19. I have a verse here. Um, Jesus says to his soon-to-be followers, he says, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. This is all within the context of Jesus saying, I'm going to make you disciples. I'm going to turn you or transform you from who you currently are into becoming apprentices of, of me, followers of me. And he basically breaks it down, I, th- I think, in the three simple ways. And that's kind of at least how I want to look at it, is it affects, the way I'll look at it with these nice little icons, is it affects the head, the heart, and the hands. What we do, how we live, the head, how we think, um, the heart, what we feel, how we act, all these other things. It's all affected, it's all encompassing. So I want to think about discipleship in this way. So in short, disciple is all three of these things in combination. And I think as we kind of look at them, you'll notice that you can be maybe one of them and not other two, and that's not a disciple. A disciple is actually all three of these. So, so it should be a little bit you know, uh, convicting in some ways, and hopefully, if anything, it should like elevate us, elevate our desires to want to be something that the Bible describes is so that we can grow and become the people that God intends for us to be, mature uh, followers of Jesus. So a disciple, first of all, is one who knows and follows Jesus. He's one that simply put, knows and follows Jesus. Again, Jesus said, come follow me. So Jesus obviously has had some form of relationship with the people that he's calling, maybe not too much, but enough to where they knew him, uh, at least in a cursory fashion, to actually follow him. So first of all, it has to do with knowing and following Jesus. So a disciple is not less than knowing and following. It's far more than, but it's not less than this. So this involves, I think, information. Um, information about who Jesus is. Information is necessary uh, in terms of what discipleship is all about. Um, and this is where I would say that there is a little bit of a breakdown in the way that we Westerners think about discipleship. Because here's what we typically have done, I think, historically within the Christian church, is we've reduced discipleship to like a four-week class. Where each hour you go into a discipleship meeting, you get some information. And all that's really good. It's healthy. There's nothing wrong with that. I think it can be very helpful. Again, like I said, it's not less than information, but it's far more than information. And if information is really the sum total of what discipleship is, then I think we're missing some of the greater elements of what discipleship is, what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus or an apprentice of Jesus. So I think, again, a lot of this has to do with how we as Westerners approach Jesus. We think if we just have the right information, 
right knowledge of who God is, of what God is like, right theological concepts in our mind, then we are, by definition, a disciple. The problem is, 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 is the Bible. Um, because what you have, oftentimes, are people who know about Jesus, know right information about Jesus, but they're not a disciple of Jesus. In other words, their life, their actions, their mind, their desires, their heart, um, is not in any way, shape, or form in sync with the heart, the mind, the thought of God. They might have the right knowledge about God. They might pass a you know, trivial pursuit quiz on Bible knowledge, Bible trivia. Um, but the reality is our hearts, our sexuality, our actions, our ideas, um, our attitudes are not in any way, shape, or form in sync or in line with God. It's out of sync. That's not a disciple. That's just, that's just a person who's got a lot of information. So and there's a big difference here, and the Bible is always quick to kind of point this out and make this clear. So if, again, first of all, it's a, a disciple is one who knows and follows Jesus. He's learning about Jesus. He's growing in his information about Jesus. So information is necessary, but it's not the sum total of everything. The second thing that we see is that a disciple is also being changed by Jesus. He's being changed by Jesus. Again, Jesus makes a statement. He says, come, follow me, and I will make, I will make, this is Jesus' declaration over the people that would take him up on the offer, and actually follow him. This is Jesus' statement to these groups of people, this group of people saying, I will make you. I will shape you. I will transform you. This is really actually great news. Because Christianity, at its core, is not a self-help mechanism. It's, it's, at its core, it's not a means to somehow attain a better morality. And a lot of times, in Christian circles, there's been a tendency to simply treat Christianity as a means to somehow better yourself. Now, I, I do believe that as you follow Jesus, your life will become better. It's, again, it's not less than that, but it's far more than that. Because at its core, Christianity is about Jesus. It's about a person. It's about having a relationship with this God that designed and created us and made us and has a, has a plan for our lives and loves us and knows us and calls us from death to life, from darkness to light, from alienation into love. This is the God that we have. This is the God that makes himself known to us. So it's a God that wants to change us and transform us. Now, the reason why I say this is really good news, because many of us, it's, you know, we can look at our lives and we realize that we struggle with being in control. So a lot of us, we, we want to control external scenarios around our lives. We organize our drawers. We organize our bedrooms. We organize our cupboards. We control the dog. We control all these other elements of our lives. And part of that is kind of this cover-up because we realize that there is nothing but chaos in here. We're not in control. There's attitudes, there's ideas, there's concepts, there's struggles, there's emotions, there's desires inside of our heart that are literally um, out of alignment. You take your hands off of your heart for any length of time and you veer off into oblivion off the side of the road. You crash. And the older you get, the more you become aware that uh, that life that is out of alignment, that life that is prone towards drift, um, that there's casualties in your life that you will be the result of. You'll be the cause of, I should say. And when you, the more you realize, like, oh my gosh, there are things in my heart, things about me, things about the way I talk, things about the way that, for the most part, I am, that I feel powerless to overcome Who's going to save me from this body of death, like the way Paul would say this in Romans chapter 6? And the whole idea is that God will. 
And this is exactly what Jesus says. He says, come to me, follow me, learn of me, and I will make you. I will change you. I will transform you. So this is exception. This, this, is, this breathes hope into our hopelessness. Because what this means is it means that as we trust God, as we give our lives, as we live our lives in, in this open expression of saying, yes, God, here I am. As we live our lives in a way and just simply say, God, there are things about me I wish were not there. There are things about me that are broken. There are things about me that I wish were not the way that they are. But I bring them all as dysfunctional, as broken, as dirty, as filthy, as embarrassing, as shameful as I feel about these things. I bring them all to you. And I lay them at your feet. And you're, you're the creator of all good. And I've brought a lot of brokenness in my life. And God, I bring all these things before you. God, I'm asking you to please help me. And this is a God that says, I'll make you. I'll remake you. There are these images throughout the Old Testament. And one of the most predominant ones I think that resonates so well with me is this picture of the potter and the clay. And it's this image where God is like this potter. He's sitting at this like spinning wheel and he's like shaping this clay. And the image is, this is exactly what God is wanting to do with Israel. And yet the problem with Israel was all of this hardness, all of this hardness. And hardness is equivalent to us basically saying, no, <laughs> no, I'll take care of it myself. Or no, I'm too embarrassed about that. And I don't want to bring it to the light. Or no, I'm ashamed of that. So therefore we hide it, we veil it, we hide behind these like little fake fig leaves that we create for ourselves. As long as we hide behind these things, as long as we alienate ourselves, as long as we run from this potter, then we're basically saying, I'll, I'll, I'll reshape my life. But we begin to realize, like, like, we can't reshape our lives. Our hands are dirty. Our lives are broken. Our hearts are dysfunctional. Who will save us? And this is where Jesus says, I'll, I'll do that. I will do that. I will make you. I will shape you. The flip side of all this is really, really good because what this means is that we are a community of dysfunctional, broken people that right now are currently in this process whereby Jesus is shaping us. So what that means is that the people that are closest to you, the people that you know the best, the people that you are in the closest relationship with, this could be a spouse, could be a, a roommate, could be a parent, it could be a, you know, someone that you're really, really close to, they will be dysfunctional and broken right now. And that dysfunctionality and brokenness will probably break you and hurt you and cause dysfunctionality within your relationship. But again, this is where the hope of Jesus comes back to life within our hearts or brings light into our darkness. Is because what it means is that as we are being shaped, it's, it's, it's about patience. Recognizing that who I am today uh, is not who I'm going to be one day, like God is shaping me, he's changing me, like praise God. But I think it was um, John Newton who said, but who I am now is better than what I was. Like I, I, some, to some degree, like paraphrasing that. But the idea is that, that who I am right now is as annoying as it may be or as dysfunctional as it may be, is, is far better than what I was 10 years ago. But hopefully 10 years from now, I'm going to be a little bit further along as well because we have this great hope that as we follow Jesus, Jesus is changing us, he's transforming us, he's making us, remaking us, uh, removing those desires for things that have gone, caused us to go astray, and he's replacing those with new desires for things that, that he loves, things like, uh, that reflect who he is. And so here's something I had written down, it's kind of like this, um, he transforms our desires and 
uh, transformation of our desires will actually affect our actions. Um, because what our hearts love, what our hearts love, our wills will pursue. What our hearts love, our wills will, per- will pursue. So let me put it this way. If you right now are dealing with addictive actions or things that are uh, addictions within your lives, part of the problem is, is that there is sort of this love affair. We, we love the simple, uh, there, there's a sense of comfortableness with that. And what we really need is to have a heart change. I mean, we can, we can stop behavior or do the best we can to, top, to try to stop or remove ourselves from doing certain behaviors, but we've never really dealt with the actual issue, which is a heart. But what Jesus does is he, he goes so deep and he begins to actually transform our desires. So with renewed desires, we begin to act differently. We begin to treat our neighbors differently. We begin to love our enemies in ways that we never even thought we were capable. We begin to have patience that we never thought was possible. God begins to reshape us as he changes our desires. And that's what we see that God does. So that's what a disciple is. Moving on, we see thirdly, is that a disciple is also one who's on mission with Jesus. And this is what Jesus says. He says, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So as he's calling these initial disciples to come follow him, he's basically saying, here, I, I, have, I have a game plan for you. I have something I'm calling you to do. And it's, it's a mission. We would call it a mission. It's, it's, a, it's a purpose. I'm sending you out into this world to make disciples of, of other people, uh, to call them to come follow me, to call them to move from death to life, to move from darkness to light, to move from these things, to find life. And I'm sending you out. So here's the thing. The, the fact that I would just simply say is this, is that the, the, I, even though the word discipleship is something that may be foreign to our vocabulary, it is a Bible term. It is a Bible term that describes followers of Jesus. And I, w- I would add one final layer to this. Um, the, the, the big question for all of us is not, are you a disciple of Jesus? The question is, um, are you a good disciple of Jesus? All of us are disciples of something. All of us are disciples of something. We are either disciples of Jesus, and we're being remade into his image, or we are disciples of alternative things that this culture is constantly throwing at us, begging us, wooing us to buy into. In other words, there's all these claims for discipleship. We call that marketing in in our world today. And every form of marketing and advertisement and, you know, things that get posted on our Facebook feed, things that just pop up, All of these are attempts to say that if you give your energy, your time, and your will to this dream, you can have it all. You can have it all. Let me give you an example of this. The sexual revolution. Sexual revolution took place in the 60s. It kind of came to full fruition within the 70s. And it was this, this, this promise. I said, if you indulge completely in your complete sexual identity who you are, how you feel, how you think you should be treated, how you, what you think you get, what you think you should really get, then you will have freedom. Freedom, in other words, the gospel proclamation of the sexual revolution was live as sexually free as you can and you will have life. You will be free. The problem is, that is a false claim. It is a lie. It is a lie. To believe that actually leads one to a place of destruction. Here's what I mean by this is that to follow Jesus means to give our lives over to him. There are costs incurred. We pay. We take up our cross and follow Jesus the way what Jesus describes, which means there are things that we will say no to. There are things with God that we say yes to. And as we do that, that will be costly for us. 
But don't for a minute think that any other claim of discipleship is costless. Or in other words, has no cost attached to it. Every claim of discipleship, every counter gospel always has a cost affixed to it. So the cost of the sexual revolution was all of these unwanted pregnancies, which needed to be done something with. So we created more convenient ways to do something with it. We call it abortion, which, again, doesn't clear the conscience because women that have engaged in that, they feel the pain and the shame and the hurt and the wounds. And men oftentimes just turn their backs and walk away in cold indifference. And that creates a sense of, of, of insecurity and brokenness and dysfunctionality. The cost of the sexual revolution was absolutely great. And people are still paying for it today. Don't think for a minute that if you, in this today's context, were to say, I'm going to indi- engul- you know, engage in the, the great claim of the sexual revolution and go out and you know, live free and engage with as many partners as I can, free sex, booty call, however you want to describe it, Tinder, download the app, live that particular way, that somehow you will get away without paying for it. You will pay a price, and the price that you will oftentimes pay is one of, Perennial brokenness and hurt and feeling very cheap and dirty inside. That's the price. It's a cost. It's a cost that you will pay. There is always a cost to discipleship. Every one of us in this room are disciples of something or someone or some ideal or some concept. We are either disciples of Jesus and we are being transformed and changed and learning of Jesus and we are engaged upon his mission or we are disciples of some sort of other ideal and concept and we will pay. There is a cost to be paid. In every case, what we see with Jesus is Jesus says, my promises are great and I'll pick up the tab. And that's what we see the cross is Jesus picking up the tab. Jesus paying the price ultimately for us. Every other false claim comes to us and says, there's great hope if you give your life to me, if you follow my ideals, if you live according to your own conscience. But in the end, we end up having to pick up the tab, and the tab gets compounded, and the interest gets compounded, and our lives are broken down and ruined. And yet what we have is this God that keeps coming back to us over and over and over again, saying, come to me. Come to me, and I'll carry your heavy burdens. I will take the heavy load that you feel restricted and bound and crushed and oppressed underneath the weight of, and I will set you free. We have a God that says, I will set you free. So, back to the story. Ananias was a disciple. What is a disciple? A disciple is one who knows and follows Jesus. He's one who's being transformed by Jesus. He's one who's engaging within the mission of Jesus. That's exactly where we see this guy, Ananias, in the story. Ananias is a disciple. Let's keep reading. It says, the Lord then said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I, here I am, Lord. And then he said, rise and go to the street called Straight. At the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias. Come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Here's where it gets really interesting. But then Ananias answered and says, Lord, I've heard, of, heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he is, he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all and call that call upon your name. It's kind of funny. Like, like, like Ananias is giving God information that do you think God already knows this information? Like, does, does God happen to know that Saul is a pretty dangerous guy? So here's, here's what's happening. So, so Ananias has his vision. He somehow, again, you ask, might ask what a vision is. A vision basically is a daydream. 
the, the Bible describes dreams that at night when you sleep, sometimes God might give you a, a picture, a dream that we call it. You might wake up in the morning. It might be really profound. Um, if you have those types of things, don't just simply eliminate them. Maybe pray and ask God, guys, is there something you want to speak to me through that that was really tangible, that was powerful? Maybe just take moments and think about that and pray about that in your morning time. Um, if you are still having a hard time with it, ask someone that maybe has a little bit longer walk with Jesus than you and just ask them, hey, I had this dream. Can you, you know, pray for me? Ask God to show me what that might look like. A vision is something that would like, be like that, but it would come to you during the day. And this is what Ananias seemed to have. It's some sort of image that came to his mind. Um, and in that image, it, it, was, it was a picture of this, this guy, um, uh, Saul of Tarsus, and God speaks to him, tells him to go to this guy, Saul of Tarsus. Uh, now, he knows who Saul of Tarsus is. Now, again, Saul is this ravenous, uh, uh, raging, angry uh, religious leader that's out to basically throw into prison anybody that's a follower of Jesus. So Ananias, my guess, and, you know, again, I'm just kind of reading this into the story. My guess is Ananias was probably at the very top of that food chain, right? He's number one on the menu, like, like number one on Paul's list. Get Ananias and throw him into prison. So, so here, ironically, all right, uh, don't say that God doesn't have a sense of humor. Um, God ironically calls Ananias, I want you to go to this guy, Saul of Tarsus, and, and go lay hands on him and pray for him. Simultaneously, Saul has his own vision. In his vision, Guess what his vision is? His vision is there's a guy named Ananias who's living on this street. He's going to come to you and lay hands on you and pray for you. So how crazy is that? Like simultaneously visions bringing these two people together. So here's, here's what I like to do sometimes. When, when I talk with people, when I pray with people, when I'm in, engaged in conversation with people, a lot of times I'll, I'll, I'll just ask God. I'm like, God, are there visions, images, pictures maybe that you have uh, for me to give to these other people, are there images maybe that come to my mind? If there is an image that comes to my mind, uh, there's a lot of times I've, over the past year I've been really trying to be even more attuned to this and just asking God, God, what is that image of? Like, what does it represent? Is this, is this something that you want me to share with this person? Is this something that's maybe just for me? Um, if it is something you want me to share with this person, what, what in the world does this mean? Um, because I, I think the Bible talks about this type of stuff. And I think the, the key is that we want to be open. Like, be, be open to how is God maybe leading and moving. We see it here in the Bible. It's in the scripture. There are those that would say that was for a limited time. It doesn't happen anymore. And I would say that the, typically the arguments to, to make those cases are, are really uh, thin ground. They don't have much basis for that. But here's my point. Is I think God is always speaking. And here we have disciples, like in this case Ananias, who's just saying, yes, Lord, what do you have for me? But it's not always a yes, Lord, with, with, with no conditions. I mean, in this case, Ananias is really wrestling with the impact of this. And I would say that if you, if you really are a follower of Jesus, there are going to be moments where you will wrestle with the call of God. There will be moments when you will wrestle with what God is asking you to do. And expect that. Because if God is God... All right, let me, let me put it into another context. If you say, for example, are training for a marathon, why you would run a marathon is absolutely beyond me. It's ridiculous. But let's just say, for example, you're like, I want to run a marathon, all right? If you want to run a marathon, you're training for it. You have somebody that's training you to say, no, you need to push yourself, go further. And at some point, you're going to be like, I don't want to do that. I can't do that. I'm going to collapse if I do that. I'm going to throw up if I do that. I cannot do that. But they're going to keep saying, no, no, you're going to, you're going to do it. Because if you're going to run this marathon, you have to be able to do this. I'm going, to, I'm going to keep pushing you, and you're going to keep seeing sparks. There's going to be moments of conflict. But this is what it means to follow Jesus. There's going to be times when God will ask us to do stuff, to invite us into very uncomfortable or disconcerting situations. 
that completely cause us to bristle against him. That's normal. But what's not normal is to keep in a posture saying, no, God. What's normal is to be like, really, God? Are you sure? I, 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 really? Is this, I, I, God, what about this, this, and this, and this situation? And at some point, there's a tapping out. At some point, there's a, okay, Lord. Yes, God. Yes, I'll follow you. And that's, that's what we see with Ananias. At some point, he just is like, okay, Lord, I, 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 will, I will do it. There are times when God may call you into something that you bristle against. Look, let's, let's give the obvious. Nobody wants to go into a season of cancer. We bristle against that. But we also might realize, like, I have no choice. Like, doctor said, this is what I got. And I'm dealing with it. I got to work with that. I got to deal with that. I got to go through this process or whatever that looks like. But in some cases, it's like God saying, no, I want you to go into this marriage and find reconciliation. I want you to invest in a relationship that's been broken and defunct and somehow bring life into that situation. And we bristle against that because we feel there's no way I can do that. That runs against all my sensibilities and all my sensitivities. And God says, do you trust me? I'll help you. I'll lead you. I'll guide you. It's going to feel painful. There'll be a cost incurred. But if you follow me, I'm I'm the life-giving God. I'm the resurrecting God. I will take you into places of death. But death always, okay, here's the thing with God. Here's the secret you need to know about God. Are you ready? Death with God is always what precipitates resurrection. So some of you right now might be looking at circumstances in your life. You're like, this is death. Death. Why would I be led into a valley of death? Because that's what precipitates resurrection. With a God that brings resurrection. So Ananias is like, really, God? Paul? Saul of Tarsus? Death. I'm going to die if I go to this guy. And God's like, yes, but I've got something up my sleeve that you you don't even know. Follow me. You trust me. And Ananias, because he's a disciple, he follows Jesus. He knows. He follows Jesus. He's being transformed. And we're going to see his transformation really profoundly in the remainder of this as I finish up. And then it goes on in verse uh, 14. He says, And here he has the authority by the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name. But then the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, the kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he is to suffer for my name's sake. So again, that's interesting. Paul's going to have a very difficult a transition from being a uh, representative of the temple, arresting people, to into this new life of being a Jesus follower, a disciple of Jesus. Um, it's going to be tough. Then he goes on to say in verse 17, this is where it gets awesome. He says, so Ananias departed, and then he entered in the house, and laying hands on Saul of Tarsus. This is amazing. Here's what he said. Brother. This is just the guy, like, a couple hours earlier, who's, like, freaking out. He's like, God, are you sure? This is my enemy. This guy is he's out to destroy me. I am I'm literally plankton. I'm at the top of the food chain. I'm going to be eaten by this guy. This guy is going to devour me. And he walks in. And he's like, Brother Saul. Like, this is what the gospel does. The gospel gives us the power. It's the power of God under salvation. It's the power of God of life after death. It's the power of God bringing into existence things that once have long passed and died and are gone, hopes that were once dashed. It's a way of renewing, revitalizing life. And this is what he does. He comes in and by faith, I think by faith, he's just like, brother Saul. I mean, imagine the word. Imagine being Paul. Saul of Tarsus. Again, I keep going back and forth, but it's all the same guy. Imagine being Saul of Tarsus, hearing 
from this guy that no doubt Saul is out to arrest, hearing him, his enemy, this guy that he's out to kill, actually come to him and, and extend a word that's rich with acceptance and warmth. Not alienation, not hatred, not spite, but, but love. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine someone that you've hated coming to you, giving you a call, sending you an email that's filled with warmth? This is one of the reasons why I think the Bible describes it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. For many of us, when we realize that God is not an angry landlord out to absolutely evict us into the street of this cosmic chaos we call this world this earth this is existence instead he's this father that says listen you you're far from home you've squandered everything but i love you when we realize the rich warmth of this god that loves us that melts us that takes our hearts of stone our cynicism and it literally turns it inside out transforms us it shapes us that's what love does love changes us it transforms us Transform this guy, Paul. And he goes on to say, and I'll finish up here. He says in verse uh, 18, immediately it felt that there fell like scales from his eyes uh, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and he was baptized, taking food. He was strengthened. And for some days he was with his disciples in Damascus. So Paul gets labeled into this other company of Jesus people, disciples, that Paul is hanging out with these disciples, not killing them, not calculating ways to arrest them, but as one of them. This, I mean, this conversion of Paul is, is almost complete. I say almost because in a few chapters we're going to read, he's going to go to um, Jerusalem with the rest of the, the, the church there in Jerusalem. And he's going to try to become part of this other community of disciples. But these guys are going to be like, we're not really sure you are even a disciple. So there's a lot of skepticism about this guy Saul's conversion. But nonetheless, this is the beginning stages of him being invited, welcome. And it all began with this guy who just had symbols in his hand. It all began with this guy who had no significant part in the rest of the whole story as a main, as a main player. He, he, he just plays a simple role, walks off the stage. We don't know anything else about him. But his role was to say, Brother Saul. But in order to get to the place of saying, Brother Saul, he had to first say, yes, Lord. Yes, God. I don't understand your ways, God. I'm not sure why you're asking me to do this. But, but yes, Lord, I'm a disciple. I will go into those places that are tough and challenging and difficult because I trust you. So in conclusion, I think about some summary things to take away. One is I think that one of the things that we've already observed throughout the entire book of Acts is that God's a speaking God. He's always speaking. We see him speak through prophets. We see him speak through preachers. We see him speak through uh, visions and dreams and tongues and all sorts of other crazy, abstract, different types of ways. But he's always speaking. Question is, are, are we listening? Are we listening? Are we listening? Are we kind of tuned out? Are we distracted? Um, right now, in this room, there is all sorts of radio waves transmitting Trump speeches filled with hate and rage and anger and Hillary speeches filled with whatever and Bernie speeches and there's like talk show radio thing going on. There's music. Somewhere Katy Perry is out there singing. But the fact of the matter is none of us can hear it because we don't have our radios tuned into that station at this moment. If you do, you're not paying attention to the sermon. Pay attention to the sermon. <laughs> Anyways, we, we, don't, we don't hear this because we're not tuned to them. The same way, God is always speaking. God is always speaking, but we're not, often not listening. We're not tuned in. 
we're, we're not like Ananias. We're not saying, here I am, Lord, speak. God's always speaking. Uh, are we listening? Secondly, God um, is always leading. He's always looking to lead. But the question is, are, are we following um, and obeying? Ananias was like, here I am, Lord. That, that was the posture of clay that says, there's no hardness in me. And if there is, I want those chunks of hardness out. God, here am I. Shape me, mold me, however you wish, however you will. Uh, God is always looking to lead, but really, oftentimes, we have this tendency to have, we bristle against God, and we, we bristle, and we, we, we think of it as just a normal, common activity without any real modification or change, and yet that bristling is oftentimes what leads us in that regular status to just have a hardness of heart. And, and it, rather than becoming like this guy Ananias, or even like Mary who says, yes, Lord, speak for your servant hears. We become like Pharaoh, little Pharaohs that want to govern our world, and yet we have government over our world with a hardened heart. And Yahweh is really far, and yet he's wanting to be really close and lead and guide. And finally, I think we have a God that moves. But the question is, are, are we available? Are we present? Are we actually present where God is wanting to move? So here's the funny thing about our culture which we live in is that we can actually be physically present. I mean, we've all seen those images and those pictures where the whole family is at the dinner table, but they're all on their cell phones, right? That's the way we oftentimes live. Like, we are in community, but we are absent. We, we are present physically, but we are absent emotionally, mentally. We're somewhere else. And I think the same way can be transposed into our relationship with God, that, that God is always wanting to move and guide and lead and speak, and yet oftentimes we are distracted through disbelief, we're focused on our cell phones, our devices, or other things that are going on in our life. We are not present. We miss the simple speaking and leading of, of God that wants to bring life. So, final, I'm going to read a, uh, a prayer. Several years ago, I started um, buying like, like little prayer books, and, and it's been cool. I kind of discovered, like, throughout the whole history of the church, we're talking like since 100s, right? Christians have like written prayers, but for the most part, I mean, throughout the whole history of the church, even predating Christianity, uh, Jews would, would use like the Psalms. These are prayer books, and they would recite these. They would pray them, and uh, throughout the history of the Christian church, they would write these prayer books. So I've been finding a lot of richness in just reading prayers of the, of the past from Puritans, from all sorts of saints, people that have like loved Jesus and followed Jesus, and it's been really, really cool just reading these prayers. Um, there's one prayer that, I, that was written by kind of a modern-day guy that has a little prayer book. He's, he's a scholar by the name of Walter Brueggemann, and uh, it's just it's a great prayer. It's just simply called, called Yes, and I, I want to read it to you. Just, just listen to it, and then um, I'm gonna, we're going to have, I'll have the worship team come on up right now, and as they're coming up, I'll, just, I'll read it. So if you want, you can read it on the screen if you want. It's fine. Um, if not, maybe just you can close your eyes and just begin to have a posture of just openness, saying, God, um, here I am. Speak to me. My heart's, my life is like clay on a, on a pottery wheel that I want you to reshape because there's, there's areas of hardness in my heart right now that are actually prohibiting and destructive and ruinous to not only my life, but it's also ruinous to the lives of other people around me. And God, here I am. Speak to me. God, give me strength to walk into some of these areas that are, that are difficult. And it's about, the theme is saying yes to God. That's what a disciple is. A disciple is simply one who says yes to Jesus. Doesn't mean he doesn't wrestle. Doesn't mean that there's not moments where it's challenging, it's difficult. Doesn't mean there's moments where you realize I'm being asked to jump into the deep end. I'm a little bit frightened about what's in there. So there's pause. But it means 
we work through those things and we process through those things and we find others to help us work through those things and then we do it. We obey. Just, just listen to this prayer and then I'll wrap it up. It says this. You are God who is simple, direct, clear, with us and for us. You have committed yourself to us. You have said yes to us in creation, yes to us in our birth, yes to us in our baptism, yes to us in our awakening this day. Next slide. Sorry. But we, on the other hand, are more accustomed to, perhaps maybe, and we'll see, and we are left in wonderment and ambiguity. We live our lives, not back to your yes, but out of our endless perhaps. So we pray for your mercy this day that we may live yes back to you. Yes with our time. Yes with our money. Yes with our sexuality. Yes with our strength. Yes with our weakness. Yes to our neighbor. Yes to no longer perhaps. In the name of your enfleshed yes to us. Even Jesus, who is our yes to our future. What a great word. Jesus is God's enfleshed yes to us. Simultaneously doesn't mean that God doesn't say no. There are things that God says no to. God says no to death having the final word. No to destruction having the final say over the lives of my people. It's God's way of saying yes to us. And it's a way for us to enter in and say, will we say yes to God? Will we open ourselves up as these followers of Jesus? Because again, in summary, we are all disciples of something or someone or some ideal or some concept. The question is, what is shaping us? Is it life-giving? Is it Jesus? Is it God? Is it eternal? Or is it something that has an expiration date on it? And when that fad passes away and when that shallow hope dies, we die with it. We shrink with it. But when our hope is in God, the enfleshed, yes. It opens us up to these horizons to welcome into our lives people that would have formerly been our enemy, to call them brother. Do you realize how shocking of a message that is to a world that is so confused about what life is all about? This is what the gospel invites us into. So I invite you to say yes to to God. So why don't we all stand, we'll sing, we'll respond, invite you to partake of the communion, the Lord's Supper. It's a way to remind us that the Lord's Supper is God's way of saying, come, all of you who are thirsty and hungry and weary and broken and forgotten and alienated and have not, come to this table and you'll be fed. We have this amazing God. I invite you to open your hearts to him right now. So let's, let's respond, let's sing and pray, and we'll just respond. God, thank you for your great love, and we open our hearts to you.